this morning. Uh, those are listed there in your worship guide, and so you can uh, maybe stick a thumb or bookmark in those other places. We'll be again in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. We'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll, we'll get there in, in due time this morning. Um, if you're using one of the uh, Bibles that's either under your seat or under the seat in front of you, uh, we'll be started in Acts 2. That's on page 856. And so you can uh, turn there and follow along with us there. The scriptures will also be uh, on the screens behind me. And so you can read along there. But I encourage you to look along in your own copy of God's Word this morning. I mentioned last week that uh, that over the last two or last week and this week, those two Sundays together, we would be uh, revisiting and looking at in a, a fresh way uh, our mission as a church and our vision as a church. The mission of our church is that point on the horizon that we're all steadfastly moving in the same direction toward. Our mission is printed on the front of your worship guide every single week so you can read it and memorize it and be encouraged to be a part of it. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Last Sunday, we looked at Psalm 16 and saw how our our enjoyment of God is, is so very often what spurs us to give God glory, to worship him, to honor him, to praise him. And that as we uh, glorify God, he delights our soul uh, in that way. And so we enter into this uh, never ending cycle of enjoying God and glorifying him and enjoying him and glorifying him all while we live our lives to point other people to Jesus. This morning, we're going to uh, shift from our mission to look at our vision statement. And our uh, thinking about it this way, mission statement it gives us that point on the horizon that we're all marching toward. We're all moving in the same direction together toward glorifying God by making disciples of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And our vision statement is, if you will, kind of guardrails along the road on the way to uh, achieving, accomplishing, fulfilling our mission. Our vision statement is what shows us, uh, demonstrates to us what sort of disciples of Jesus we will be as we grow in maturity and obedience to him. And it also uh, kind of uh, shapes the, the path, if you will, for the kinds of disciples we seek to make, kinds of uh, followers of Jesus that, that we want to see grow into his image. Uh, our vision is this. You have it printed in your worship guide with some strategic blanks for you to fill out. This is our vision statement. We will make disciples who know Jesus Christ as Lord through his word, who help one another grow in maturity and obedience to Christ, and who go to our neighbors and to the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, there are three words that you need to know that will summarize all of our vision statement. Know, grow, go. Know Christ as Lord through his word. Grow in maturity with others and obedience to Christ. Go to our neighbors and our nations with the gospel of Jesus. This morning, I want to uh, look at a few places of scripture that speak directly to our vision for making disciples as a church and to share with you some goals that I am praying for and that we will be encouraging ourselves as a church to uh, to press forward in throughout the course of this year as we seek to fulfill our mission by being disciples that look like what our vision statement tells us that we will be. Would you stand with me as we uh, look first at Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41, seeing how the Word of God reveals the Son of God. The Word of God reveals the Son of God. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36, uh, we catch up on the, the end of the Apostle Peter's first Christian sermon uh, on the day of 
Pentecost. And this is how his sermon ends. He's just preached and pointed everyone to the identity of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 36, let then all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they, the Jewish men listening, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about three thousand souls. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The word of God reveals the son of God. By that, I mean the scriptures that we hold in our hands or sitting in our laps this morning point us to Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now, I want to give you a little bit of context for the passage that we just read. Peter has, as we said, just preached the very first Christian sermon in all of church history. In his sermon, he reviews the promise that God gave through several of his prophets in two different places. In one place, he cites from Joel, the prophet, chapter 2, who several uh, several hundred years before Jesus was born, prophesied a day when God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And Peter says, what you're seeing and hearing is the fulfillment of that promise. You see, on that day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down from heaven, dwelt in the hearts of all of the apostles and believers who are gathered together waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and enabled them to speak uh, other known languages that they previously had not been taught so that all uh, Jews from all around the world who were gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in their native tongue. In his sermon, Peter recalls Psalm 16. We looked at Psalm 16 last week and he he mentions this here in chapter 2 verses 25 through 28. And in verse 27, we have that uh, passage uh, or that verse that David wrote in Psalm 16 that Peter cites here that you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. We saw last week how that verse is not just about God's steadfast love for David, but how it's a prophetic word about God not allowing, not leaving his son, the Messiah, to, to rot in the grave, but to raise him up again to new life. And Peter says Psalm 16 is a prophecy from David about the Messiah who has come, who you put to death, who has been risen now uh, to new and glorified life. Peter reminds them. At the end of his sermon, we picked up here in verse 36 that the Jesus that the Jews had just crucified, whose tomb was found empty just 50 days earlier, that that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the son of God, the deliverer, the redeemer that they had all been waiting for for hundreds, if not thousands of years. This text, this sermon that we have from Peter in the close of it here illustrates for us that the word of God in both the Old and the New Testaments, is centered around the person of Jesus. It's all either pointing to him, preparing God's people for him, uh, uh, centered explicitly on his life, death, and resurrection, like we see in the four Gospels, or uh, the rest of Scripture is, in the rest of the New Testament, is pointing back to Jesus and reminding God's people of their constant need for him. 
All of scripture is about Jesus. And the word of God, as it is proclaimed, as Peter does during this first Christian sermon, and as the word of God is understood by those that it is proclaimed to, the word of God is for our good to lead us to repentance. Right? As, as Peter preaches this word, as he points people to Jesus, the son of God, the people listening are cut to the heart, Luke tells us in Acts. They're convicted. They are, they are uh, burdened by the truth that they have just received. And they respond, brothers, what must we do? What shall we do? The message that you have just preached, pointing us to Jesus, requires a response. And Peter says, repent and be baptized for, your, for the forgiveness of your sins. Together as a church, we believe and affirm that there is no way to know Christ as Lord except through his word. Peter demonstrates that on the day that he preaches. Peter's sermon is full of scripture, full of the Old Testament, the scriptures that they had as Jews, pointing the people to Jesus, the Messiah. We today have these scriptures, these sacred words of God uh, that he inspired holy men to write for our good. We have the word of God in our hands, in our laps right now even. And all of it, the purpose of all of it is to point us to the identity of the Son of God, Jesus To know him in truth. There's no way to know Christ rightly. To know him truly. Except through the word of God. Except through the Bible. Knowing Christ then in truth. Is to know that he is Lord of all. And he is Lord over all. That he is ruling and reigning as king over the cosmos. Even now. And his intention. His desire. In fact what you have been created and designed for. Is to to submit to him as Lord and king. Now this is not a burdensome submission. Right To follow Christ as king, to give your life over to him as Lord is not a difficult thing. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, Come to you all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light, says Jesus. To know him is to know that he is Lord over all. It is to give all of our life uh, to the total control and direction of Jesus. It is also to know that he's the savior of everyone who turns from their sin and places trust in him as the only God in flesh who can reconcile us to God the Father. There is one way to be made right with God, and that is through faith in his son Jesus as we turn from sin and trust in him. Now, as we as a church hold fast to this commitment that there's no way to know Christ in truth apart from his word. And as we seek to, like Peter did, proclaim Christ as Lord through the word of God, by the word of God, we anticipate with the disciples on that day of Pentecost a great response to the gospel of Jesus as we boldly and compassionately explain and declare it to others. Look at the last verse there, verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. Those who received his word, those who turned from sin, trusted in Christ, were baptized as a public demonstration of their commitment to Jesus. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I'll say that one more time for those of you who are not listening. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. Praise God. The gospel is powerful. God's word has power. 
power in it because it is his word to us. The declaration that Jesus is Lord and he died for sinners and all who come to him by faith, turning from sin and self to trust in him as Lord will be saved. It is good news that leads people to say, brothers, what shall I do? Friend, what must I do knowing that Christ died for me? And the response is turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Give your life to him. Uh, Believe as scripture says that you will be born again by the Holy Spirit. You'll have new life put in you and and not just new life but a life in relationship with the god who made you to know love and worship him the gospel as it goes out in truth and compassion is powerful as we use god's word to declare who jesus is a great and godly power attends that proclamation the word of god reveals the son of god we want to be a church who knows christ as lord in truth through his word We also want to be a church that sees other people come to know Christ as Lord through his word in truth. And so I have this goal for us this year in accomplishing our vision of being a church who makes disciples that know Christ as Lord, that we would pray for and pursue and and work with God's help towards seeing 30 people baptized this year to celebrate 30 years of God's faithfulness to us as a church. At the end of the month of March, uh, we'll be celebrating our 30th anniversary as a church. The church incorporated on March 26th, uh, 1990. And on March 29th, we'll celebrate uh, together on that Sunday morning, 30 years together as a church. What an amazing gift of God. Three decades of his faithfulness to us. Three decades of, of men, women, and children coming to faith in Jesus, coming to know Christ as Lord through his word. Friends, I can think of no way to better celebrate the faithfulness of God than to continue doing what he has called us to do in making disciples who know Christ as Lord through his word. Now, this goal, 30 baptisms this year, is not a goal that's about numbers. I could stand up here and say we're going to have a thousand baptisms this year. And everyone would probably say amen. Some of you would probably think I'm crazy, but most of you would probably say amen and cheer that. I'm not encouraging us to pursue seeing 30 people making life-changing professions of faith in Christ this year just for the sake of patting ourselves on the back and patting our membership roles. You feel? This is not about numbers. This is not about pride. This is not about our accomplishment. This is about souls. This is about the the eternal destiny of people who do not today know Jesus Christ as Lord through his word in truth. We want to see many more than this, but we are praying and pursuing and working towards seeing 30 people placing faith in Jesus as Lord and making that declaration of faith public this year through through being baptized in the waters of the uh, baptistry even just behind me. I am praying that God would lead us to, to, to have a very high water bill this year. <laughs> that we would have to fill the tank week after week after week as people come and place their faith in Jesus Christ and want to make that public, saying, I have come to know Christ as Lord through his word, and there's nothing left for me to do now but to make that public, to tell the world that Jesus is king. Dear friend, I hope that you will enjoy, you will join me in praying for and pursuing this goal this year. We make disciples who know Christ as Lord through his word. But that does not happen apart from sharing the gospel, apart from declaring, as Peter did, in love and truth, with compassion for those who don't know Jesus, that he died for sinners and that new life awaits all those who turn from their sin to trust in him. 
All of you had uh, in your seat as you came in this morning a little card like the one I'm holding in my hand that says, who's your one? And there's a blank uh, line there and then underneath it a citation or a quote there from Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. We did this last year, we're doing this again this year, in cooperation with thousands of other Southern Baptist churches in joining in this Who's Your One initiative. This initiative is very simple. You take this card, who's your one, and you who are members of our church, followers of Jesus, you are probably even now uh, thinking of one person in your life, uh, a friend, family member, coworker, neighbor, who does not know Jesus as Lord, who has not responded in faith and repentance to the uh, gospel offer of salvation through Jesus. I want you to think about that person. As their name comes to mind, I want you to write their name on that blank right there. I want you to take this, use it as a bookmark in your, in your Bible as you're following along in your daily Bible reading. Uh, maybe stick it on your uh, mirror at home so as you're brushing your teeth in the morning or shaving. You can, I don't know what shaving's like, but uh, you can look in the mirror and see that person's name and that reminder to be praying for that person and not just praying that they would come to faith in Christ, but praying that God would give you many opportunities to share the gospel with them and invite them to trust Jesus this year. You can join with me in fulfilling this goal and seeking uh, God's help in fulfilling this goal to see 30 people have their lives transformed through uh, uh, placing faith in Jesus this year through the ministry of our church by beginning with just one. By beginning with just one. So who's your one? Take a moment right now. Write that person's name. And let's stop just a moment and pray for the ones that we have just written down. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have pointed us to truth and life in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word, which points us to him, which is, which is able to make us wise unto salvation, teaching us and holding all that we need in it for life, for salvation, and for godly living. God, you have revealed yourself to us in truth. You have pointed us to Jesus, your son. And now we pray for these whose names we have just written on this card. God, you know their hearts. You know the state of their mind. You know the things that they struggle with day to day in life. God, you also know, and I believe that you have intended and planned that we would be as missionaries, as ambassadors, as emissaries for Christ in the lives of these whose names we have just written down. God, these ones are our mission field. These ones are the ones that we are praying would know the hope of life in Christ. And so we pray for them today, God. We ask, Lord, that you would soften their hearts to receive the truth of the gospel, that you would show them their sin and their need for a savior, that you would draw them to faith in Christ and that you would enable them with all your grace to make Jesus Lord as they come to know him through your word. God, make us faithful, make us bold, make us courageous. Make us loving and compassionate and gracious in every action of our lives and word that we speak. God, that others might see Christ in us and hear him declared from our lips. God, we pray that in the course of this year, as we are faithful 
stewards of the grace of God, faithful stewards of the gospel you have given, that you would save these ones. God, do what only you can do in turning dead hearts to life and bringing those from darkness to light as you use us to be those who declare the good news of Jesus Christ. God, make us to be faithful this year, we pray. We pray for 30 baptisms this year. God, I pray for many more than that. I pray by the end of the year that 30 looks ridiculously small in comparison to what you'll do through us this year. But we want to make disciples, and that begins by pointing people to Jesus. So God, start with us. Start with these ones and do the work only you can do so that you'll receive all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. The Word of God reveals the Son of God. And knowing that, we are endeavoring to see other people come to know the Son of God as Lord and Savior this year. But we find also in Scripture... That God calls followers of Jesus, those who have come to know Christ as Lord, he calls followers of Jesus to be teachers of faith. Turn with me uh, toward the back of your Bibles there, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes this to young Timothy. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now in 2 Timothy, in this second letter that Paul writes to young Timothy, uh, Paul is writing to this young pastor who he left to kind of lead the church in the great city of Ephesus. Paul is writing from prison as he has been arrested for sharing the gospel, for preaching that Christ is Savior. Uh, Paul is very likely soon to be executed for what he has been doing for his life's ministry. He calls Timothy in chapter 1, verse 2, his son in the faith. You see that repeated even in chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child. All right? Timothy is Paul's uh, closest disciple, closest uh, pupil, closest student of the faith. And he is entrusting Timothy, along with other believers, the great responsibility of preserving, fa- preserving the faith, the true faith in Christ for future generations. Again, he says, what well, you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, this text, this verse, especially chapter 2, verse 2, depends upon the fact that the content of our faith, what we have come to know about Jesus, what we have come to know about what it means to be a Christian, to walk in faithfulness to Christ, all of the content of our faith has been learned by us. And it's been learned by us from others who have been faithful to teach us. Not a one of us comes to faith in Jesus all by accident or by ourselves, isolated on an island. God has deemed and he has ordained the use of the means of teaching from one generation to another, the the core of our faith in Jesus Christ. We don't learn how to follow Jesus all by ourselves. It is meant to be learned in community with others. It is not only meant to be learned, but it's also meant to be taught. You see, if you have learned from, uh, if you have learned to follow Jesus as a Christian, you are the direct beneficiary of somebody that God has called to teach you to follow Jesus. You see? This text depends on the fact that the content of our faith has been learned uh, from those who have taught us. 
Likewise, this text teaches us that those who have learned the faith are also called to be teachers of it. So you, Christian, whether you've been a a follower of Christ for six months or 60 years or more, it is incumbent upon us who are followers of Jesus to teach others as well. And so in this way, God calls believers in Jesus to be teachers of the faith and learners of the faith also. We constantly need to be teaching the faith and learning the faith. None of us is ever going to master being a Christian in this life. Okay, Uh, I haven't met the man or woman who has yet. And if I do, um, I don't know, I'll be really surprised. But none of us has ever mastered it completely. All of us need to continue learning, growing, maturing in in Christ. And uh, none of us has has ever taught everything about Christ that we could teach in our lives. We who are learners of Christ must also be teachers. And you see how Paul intends, I should say how God intends through the teaching of Paul for the teaching and learning of faith to be a generational thing. Did you notice that there are four generations of believers mentioned in verse two alone? First, there's Paul. Paul says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. And he's speaking to Timothy, generation two. Paul's generation one. Timothy is generation two. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust Teach to faithful men, generation three, who will what? Be able to teach others also, generation four. You see, Paul is not concerned with just Timothy's maturity in the faith. He's concerned not just for his his own child in the faith's uh, uh, maturity in Christ. He's concerned for his grandchildren in the faith and for his great-grandchildren in the faith. And he knows that his great-grandchildren in the faith will only be faithful to Christ if, if his son and his grandson in the faith are faithful to teach them how to follow Jesus. God calls followers of Jesus to be teachers of faith, teachers and learners. How do we then learn the faith and how do we teach the faith? Well, at least three ways. First, in a very broad sense, we do this uh, during corporate worship like times like this, where we gather together to sing songs of praise to God, to teach ourselves, to to reflect on the uh, deep theological truths of God and the gospel in song. And to sit under the teaching or preaching of the word from those that God has called and enabled to do so. But there is a a, a limit to what we're able to accomplish together in a large group like this. Now, certainly we can, as as Paul says in Colossians 3.16, in a large group gathering in corporate family worship like this, we can let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom and grace, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We can fulfill Colossians 3.16 altogether. But there is an aspect of our life with Christ that, that is difficult to accomplish in a group like this. We're not able to, uh, because of the structure of our corporate worship, to, to dig in and, and ask and dialogue over hard questions that come up in Scripture. That's just the way that it's kind of this time is structured. It's incredibly good for us to be together like this. But we need those opportunities to dig deeper into God's Word with a smaller group of, of people. And so we do that through our small group Bible study on Sunday mornings or Sunday school. Where, where we are able to uh, take a text that's maybe a little bit shorter than we looked at uh, on Sunday morning or a text from another place of Scripture, work through another book of the Bible together, and we can ask hard questions. We can dig into God's Word. We can press one another for more knowledge, more wisdom, for better application of God's Word to our lives. We need those small group meetings. We need to have those, those kind of uh, contexts for studying God's Word where we can be like those Bereans in Acts 17 who when God 
preached the word, or when, excuse me, when Paul preached the gospel to them, they immediately went to their scriptures and searched them to see if what Paul said about Christ was true. We need to be in groups of people where we can search the scriptures to see if these things are true. And so we grow together as disciples. We teach and learn the faith in large group gatherings like corporate worship. We do so in smaller group gatherings like our Sunday morning Bible study groups, uh, small groups and maybe Bible studies that meet during the week. But we need something even more intimate, more personal than that. It's really difficult to be (laughs) honest about our shortcomings our sins, our failures in the faith. And uh, it's really almost impossible to do with uh, much confidence in a room full of people as large as this one. It's really difficult to do even in, in a room full of 12 or 15 people to be really, really honest about your personal sin struggles. It's hard to make specific life application and encouragement and to grow e- even in a small group of people. What we need in addition to that is life on life discipling relationships like Paul had with Timothy, a child in the faith. Not not because Timothy's immature, but Paul is looking at this generationally. Paul is saying, this is the one who I'm going to pour my life as a Christian into. This is the one I'm going to help to, to know and understand the word of God, to be able to teach it rightly, to have it applied to his own life, to shape and to sharpen him and to be shaped and to be sharpened by. We need close relationships, life on life, discipling relationships where we meet with just maybe one or two other people on a regular basis. Maybe it's every week. Maybe it's a couple times a month. Maybe it's just one time a month, but regularly to open God's word together, to read it with one another, to ask questions of God's word and then apply it specifically to our lives. We need people that we can confess our sins to and ask for help and accountability in walking in faithfulness and holiness with God. We need closer relationships than we can have in corporate worship. We need closer relationships than we can have in our Sunday morning small group Bible study. We need life on life discipling. We've talked a lot about this over the last two years or so since I've been your senior pastor and my heart still beats for this. We will never become, we will never reach the state of maturity in the faith that Paul talks about in like Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. We'll, we'll never be able to entrust those who will be able to teach others also unless we are practicing that right now. It is hard. It, it's risky to involve yourself in a discipling re- relationship with somebody else. You have to be able to, as a more mature believer... Share hard parts about your life. Be vulnerable about sins that you have struggled with. You have to sometimes admit that you don't know exactly what God's word means in a particular verse or passage. You have to be committed to learning from a younger or less mature believer in as much as you're committed to teaching them in as much as God has given you wisdom to do. It is hard. Those of us who are married know how difficult intimate, close relationships with another person are. It's hard to be in a discipling relationship. It takes work. It takes energy. It takes effort and commitment. But dear friends, the the benefits far outweigh any cost that is involved. I've had the pleasure in my life of walking alongside several different young men uh, as I've uh, just tried to help them to be faithful to Christ. Now, most of what I did was not perfect. (laughs) As we studied the Bible, we came up 
uh, across passages that I don't remember covering in seminary. And I had to do some extra work to understand what they meant. They asked me hard questions about life and theology and faith. And I had to admit hard things or admit that I had failures, that I had faults, that I had struggles in my own life uh, that I needed their help and their prayer for. But dear friends, all of that effort, all of that energy expended in helping others to grow in maturity and obedience to Christ was so, so worth it. Not just because they grew in faith, but because God shaped me and grew me as I was committed to teaching them. God calls followers of Jesus to be teachers of faith. The second part of our vision statement says that we make disciples who help one another grow in maturity and obedience to Christ. We're committed to that. We want to be disciples who do it, and we want to make disciples who do it. And so here's my goal for us this year for 2020. This is our goal related to that grow part of our vision, that every adult member of our church would be in a discipling relationship this year. Every adult member of First Baptist West Albuquerque, by the end of the year, would be engaged in a discipling relationship with one other. If you're, if you're, a, if you're a man, with one other male, young man, uh, or, or other men, if you're a female, with a, if you're a woman, with other women, okay, so same gendered relationships. Parents, begin in your homes with your children. Uh, in your Sunday morning Bible study groups, you may know another person who's been walking with the Lord less time than you. Uh, seek to spend time with them on a regular basis, maybe once a week over a cup of coffee in God's Word or a couple times a month, a couple times a month uh, applying God's Word to your life as you, as you read together. Now, I know that getting started in discipling is hard. The, the hardest part is taking the risk, uh, older men and women, more mature Christians, of asking someone else to, to be in a relationship like that with you. The hardest part for those who are more mature in the faith is to go to somebody else and say, hey, can we meet together once a week or a couple times a month that, that I, so that we could just open God's word, talk about it together and grow together in the faith. It takes a big risk to do so. But once you get over that hurdle, it seems that there are several others too, right? Okay, I've got someone in mind that I want to ask to disciple this year or, or somebody that maybe you're a younger believer, a less mature believer. You know you need someone pouring into your life and, and you uh, are able to take the risk of asking uh, a more mature believer to disciple you over the course of this year. Well, now what? Now what do you do? Where do you get started? How, how do you start opening God's word and, and, and reflecting upon it together? I would say just do that. I mean, maybe you just need to pick one of the gospels. Maybe you need to work through the gospel of Mark together, a chapter at a time, reading it throughout the week before you meet together. And then as you come together, you, you might read it one more time and then talk about the questions you have there and where the, the, that gospel of Mark is intersecting your life and how it's changing you. Maybe if that's, uh, you feel like that's a little bit much for you, even as you start, do you know that we give you simple tools to use every single week to use in discipling relationships? If you have a worship guide and you're on your notes page there, you look down on the bottom, there's a little line of asterisks, and then there's a line that says questions for reflection, discussion, and discipleship. If you're wanting to take the risk and you're going to be brave and you're going to step out in faith, Trusting that God's going to use you in the life of another. You want to begin a discipling relationship, but you don't know where to start. Do this as you meet together week by week. Take your worship guide with you with the notes that are in it. Read the passages that I preached on that previous Sunday morning. Talk about the things that we pointed out together from the text. And then ask these questions of one another. A very simple way to begin a discipling relationship. 
You've got the word of God. You've got some helps. Uh, you've got a sermon that you've heard before, some, some content to draw upon. And you've got a, another little extra push, some, some questions that have been formulated for you to help you start thinking about how to apply God's word to your life and to the life of another. My goal, my prayer for us is that uh, by the end of this year, every adult member of our church would be in a discipling relationship. Now, we're going to resource you. We're going to equip you. We're going to continue to encourage you to do this all year long. I am an open book. So if you ever have any questions about discipling, you need other resources, you need a kick in the pants, you need some prayer because uh, you, you came up against a situation in your discussion that week with whoever you're discipling or being discipled by, you have just questions that are, that are plaguing your mind, come call me. Send me an email. I love nothing more than helping people, helping disciples of Jesus to make disciples of Jesus. So consider me your friendliest resource. But I'd like for all of us to join in, uh, in, in seeking to develop discipling relationships this year. We know that God's word reveals to us the son of God. And we want to see at least 30. Oh, God, please answer our, our prayer in abundance. More than that. Who are placing faith in Jesus this year. And as those come in faith to Jesus, make public professions of faith. They need, to, they need help to grow in Christ. And so we are going to commit ourselves, every adult member, to being teachers of the faith. To being involved in discipling relationships this year. Third, this morning, I want to point us to this truth. That God not only reveals his son through his word, calls followers of Jesus to be teachers of the faith, but also that Jesus frees his people to be servants to all. Jesus frees his people to be servants to all. Turn with me in your Bibles uh, back a few uh, pages from where we were in 2 Timothy to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Another of Paul's letters to the church in the ancient city of Corinth. Those of you who have studied 1 Corinthians much, you know that the church there was a bit of a dumpster fire. They had all kinds of problems. And in Paul's letter, he addresses all of those issues. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Don't worry, we'll explain that here a little bit more in just a moment. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. This is a wonderful passage of scripture that comes in an interesting context. Paul in first Corinthians chapter eight speaks to an issue that the Corinthian church was dealing with. See, there were some previously pagan believers in Corinth who had come to place their faith and trust in Jesus. Now, Previously, as they worshiped 
the, the Greek and Roman pagan gods, they would participate in worship services in those pagan temples. And part of their worship was to sacrifice animals to those gods, to appease the gods, to gain the gods' favor. And after that animal was sacrificed, the meat would be butchered. And then that meat would, that, was pre, that was just butchered, which is usually primo meat. I mean, they're not sacrificing um, you, you know, uh, uh, cows with three legs and you know, goats with half horns and things like that. Or are they sacrificing the best of the animals in these pagan temples? So they take the, the, the animal that was just sacrificed, they would butcher it, and then they would sell that meat in the marketplace for people to buy. And these Christians, uh, new Christians who were previously pagans, were going, it's really hard for us to go to the market and buy that meat because we feel like when we buy that meat from that sacrifice uh, in the marketplace, like we're, just, we're joining back in with the pagan worship that we had, had, had just turned our backs on. We, we feel like buying that meat, we, we become participants in pagan worship again. And we, we can't do that and began to cause conflicts in the conscience of those who are in the church. So the church wrote to Paul saying, what do we do about this? Paul goes on to say in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians that he, he helps to address their problem, their problem of conscience this way. He says in chapter 8 that, since the gods that they previously worshipped and sacrificed to are not really gods at all, they're just they're, they're figments of the imagination, they're not true God, they're, there's no divine power in them at all. Since those gods are not really gods, then Christians of any stripe or any background are free in conscience to buy that meat at the marketplace. Though they're not free to participate in the worship where the meat is sacrificed, you see. To buy the meat, Paul says, it's good meat, it's safe meat, it's not going to give you a tapeworm. To, to buy that meat is not sinful, but to participate in the worship where that meat is sacrificed, that is sinful. But if it's just meat at the marketplace, like, buy it. Feel free and conscious to do so. But if your conscience is hindered by that, don't buy that meat. Feel free not to buy the meat. That freedom in Christ to buy the meat that was sacrificed to, to, other, to false gods does not, as Paul says, make them free to exercise that freedom in any way that would harm another believer's weaker faith. By that he means, if you're a person in the church who has no conscience problem about buying that meat that was previously sacrificed to idols, but you know another brother or sister in the church does have a problem with that, don't make a big deal about buying that meat at the marketplace because you know it's going to harm their conscience. Because if they see buying and eating that meat as participating in worship, it's going to be a stumbling block. It's going to be a hurdle, a hindrance to their growth and maturity in Christ as they're working through this issue of conscience. So Paul says, you're free in Christ to buy the meat, but but... Uh, uh, but by all means, don't buy the meat in order to make another uh, uh, Christian of weaker conscience stumble in their faith. Be wise about this. The passage that we see now in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, Paul says, I'm free from all. I have freedom of conscience in Christ. But though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. These verses that we just read from Paul's letter Teach us that we are free in Christ, free in conscience and free in life to be servants to everybody. Hear me. When we come to faith in Jesus, as we repent of our, our sins and turn to him, Jesus does not save us. His death on the cross did, did not purchase our freedom to go on living sinfully however we want. His death on the cross purchased our freedom from sin. That we might live free in conscience as followers of Christ to serve others as Christ did. 
So here's how Paul applies this truth in his life. Among Jewish non-believers, Paul lives according to Jewish law, probably kosher or, or dietary law. He, he's not eating shellfish and bacon and wearing you know, garments of mixed clothing because he doesn't want to harm their conscience. Paul doesn't want to set up in his freedom in Christ any hurdle for others to follow Jesus, but he wants to serve them in a way that they can receive his service and love and see the truth of the gospel in him. And then, so that's how he acts among Jewish non-believers. But among Gentile non-believers, Paul sits around, eats bacon and lobster po' boys, right? I mean, say, I'm free in Christ to eat bacon. I'm free in Christ to eat shellfish. I'm free in Christ to wear cotton polyester blend t-shirts, right? And if, and if, and if doing that will, will help my relationship with not, with Gentile non-believers so that I can share the gospel with them, I'll do it. I'll serve them that way so that they can hear the truth of Christ. And Paul says, among those who are weak in conscience, those who struggle with this issue of eating meat that was previously offered to idols, Paul just go buy his meat from the discount butcher down the road. And Paul's like, it's not a big deal. I mean, it's good meat. It might be affordable. It's not going to make me sick. But if I buy it, it's going to hurt somebody else. So you know what? I'm just going to go to the discount butcher down the street. Or I'll just eat vegetables my whole life if necessary. Because it's not worth causing someone else to stumble. If I can serve them in the way I live my life to show them the love and truth of Jesus, I'm going to do it. How, whatever it takes, whatever it looks like. The point of Paul's service then, out of his freedom to Christ, is this. So far as he does not disobey the law of Christ, so long as he does not live in ways that God has said in his word are explicitly sinful, Paul would go anywhere with anyone and do anything for them so that he might have opportunity to serve them in the name of Jesus and and with the gospel of salvation. Paul wasn't afraid to hang out in the marketplace with the rough and tumble people. Paul wasn't afraid to, even like Jesus, to hang out with uh, sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. Not engaging in the sinful practices that they engage in, but, but not afraid to hang out with them to say, I'm human also, and I care for you. I want to serve you. I want to give my life in love and Christian service to you so that you can see Christ and know him and have your life changed and transformed just like me. See, friends, Jesus does not die on the cross to free us from sin so that we can live in cloistered enclaves of Christianity where we don't have to have any interaction with the world around us. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, if we are called to be like Christ, we are called not to be served, but to serve and to give our lives to win as many as we can to the truth of Jesus in this life. May we be all things to all people so that by all means we might save some. And may we do that for the sake of the gospel so that we can share with those who place faith in Jesus and its blessings. We make disciples who know Christ as Lord through his word, who help one another grow in maturity and obedience to Jesus and who go, who put feet to our words. We go with the gospel of Jesus Christ to our neighbors and to the nations, becoming all things to all people so that by all means, we might see some who are saved. Here's my goal for the year ahead of us related to this aspect of our vision. I want us as a church collectively to log, I'm encouraging us to, to log, to count 2,020 hours in service to our communities and neighbors 
for the sake of the gospel and for the salvation of the lost. Now, this is not 2,020 hours per person, okay? This is for the whole church, all right? What that looks like is if there are 100 of us that are committed to serving our communities this way, that's 20 hours the whole year. Over 52 weeks, 20 hours in service to our communities. Now, what I'm not encouraging us to do is to start 47 new church ministries that First Baptist West Albuquerque has to put in the budget and fund. Okay? What I am encouraging us to do is to see the world around us, the lost people around us, the opportunities uh, and patterns of life that God has placed us in as, as, um, as opportunities for serving in the love and truth of Jesus, those who are around us, so that by all means, as we serve in love, those who are around us, we might be able to have many opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus with those whose lives we impact. Here's what it looks like in my life this year. I have Fridays out of the office. And uh, most, uh, most Fridays, I don't have, I may have some things around the house to do, some errands to run and that sort of thing, but I often have free time either in the morning or the afternoon. So this year, I'm going to be spending time on several Fridays uh, volunteering at the school where my children go and where my wife works, just as a parent, just as a pastor, a member of the community. One thing that helps me to be able to do this was going through the uh, APS uh, background check process. I had to pay like, like 12 bucks or something like that, fill out some paperwork. But now it gives me opportunity to go to the school, to serve teachers in their classrooms, to help administrators, to put files in file drawers, if that's what it takes, but to serve those that I care about and want to see come to know Jesus Christ. I started doing that a little bit last year in 2019. And do you know what I found? As I spent time with uh, teachers and uh, with students and administrators, I began to see my neighborhood and my neighbors in a completely different light. I began to see the real problems that they face day to day, their real struggles, the ways that they suffer, issues with broken homes, divorced parents, kids bouncing back and forth, children being raised by their grandparents, the struggles of teachers who have some of the same issues at home but are wanting to love their the children and educate them all the same. There is massive need in the world around us, but we will be blind to that need if we only seek to serve ourselves in our pretty little cloistered enclave here at 6400 Golf Course Road Northwest. In order to make disciples of the nations, we have to go to the nations and to our neighbors with the gospel of Jesus, with a heart like Paul, becoming all things to all people, so that as we serve in the love and truth of Jesus, people will see and be compelled by the gospel as we proclaim it. I'm so glad that we have uh, active community members that are a part of our church. We have teachers and administrators in public schools who seek to be the best teacher they can be. Because when you're a really good teacher in a public school and you're ticking all the boxes that all the administrators are looking for and your kids are hitting all the markers that they're supposed to, but you also love Jesus, you can, being a great teacher, share the gospel with massive freedom, knowing that you have made yourself as an excellent teacher indispensable to the public school system. Even if they wanted to fire you for sharing your faith, they know that they can't because they won't be able to find a teacher that's as good as you. I pray, I'm serious. Christians should be the best teachers, the best artists, the best engineers and particle physicists. We should be the best trash collectors and recycling sorters. We should be the best airplane pilots and, uh, and, and wheelchair escorts at the airport. We should seek to be the very best in every way that God has gifted us and called us in life. We should be the best nurses and doctors, and we should be the best hospital patients. Why? Because everything that we do 
do reflects upon the person and character and nature of Jesus Christ. And when we do those things as servants to everyone, we create massive opportunity for God to use our lives and the testimony from our lips that Jesus died for sinners for massive, powerful gospel movements in the world. So here's what I'm encouraging you to do. Find a way to serve in your community. Maybe it's at a, maybe you don't live in Taylor Ranch, but there's a public school that's a couple blocks around from your house. Maybe your kids don't even go to that school. I don't care. Go to the administrators and say, how can we help this year? How can we serve you? You're in our neighborhood. We're a part of the neighborhood. We want to be of service to you. Maybe there's an assisted living home or a nursing home. Uh, uh, nearby you. And, and, uh, and let's say you enjoy knitting or crocheting. Consider taking a Tuesday afternoon or something like that, going to that assisted living home and, and seeing if you can volunteer your time to help the, the, the residents of that home to learn how to knit or crochet or just spend time with them, loving on them in the name of Jesus so that in time you'll have opportunity to share the gospel with them and the people who work there. Maybe you have a very active homeowners association that's always cleaning up the medians in your neighborhood. Volunteer time to go pick up trash with them. Don't do it by yourself. Do it with somebody else, right? So you have opportunity to serve your neighbors and the people around you. There are innumerable ways to to do and to serve in the way that I am asking and encouraging us to do this year. But I trust that as we seek to serve our communities and our neighbors for the sake of the gospel and the salvation of the lost, that God will do mighty things through us as his missionaries in this neighborhood. Dear friends, I hope that you will join me in seeking to accomplish our vision for making disciples this year. That we would be and that we would make disciples who know Christ as Lord through his word. Who are helping one another grow in maturity and obedience to Jesus, and who with intentionality and love and compassion go to the lost with the gospel of Jesus. Now, all of these three three things, know, grow, and go, all work together. I want you to see a picture of our vision in action. So first part of our vision is know, right? Coming to know Christ as Lord through his word. And as, as you came, maybe as a young person or an adult, to trust Jesus as Lord, you entered into, into uh, being a disciple of Jesus this way. But you didn't stop there. Your life progressed. It continued to growing in Jesus. And so as we come to know Christ, we know that we're also called to grow in him. And so as we see people come to faith in Jesus this year, being baptized, we want to come alongside them quickly immediately to help them begin to grow in faith. And then part of our discipling with other people is serving with them by going to our neighbors and the nations with the gospel. Part of our serving together, part of our growing as disciples is being obedient to Jesus to become all things to all people so that by all means we might save some. And as we go into the world, as we serve those around us in the love and name of Jesus, we come to find others who don't know Christ. We come to find others that we have opportunity to share the gospel with. And so as we share the gospel with them and they respond in faith, they enter into this cycle of discipleship as they come to know Christ as Lord through his word. Do you see how our vision works in a cyclical way? It's always moving, never stopping, right? There's no end point to this. There's no dead end. It just keeps on going. We, we grow in our knowledge of Christ. We grow in our obedience to him. We grow in our ability to share the gospel with those who don't know him. And all along the while, God is going to save those whom he is calling to place faith in Jesus Christ. And we'll just rejoice in it. We will enjoy God for his powerful work through the gospel in our lives and the life of our church. We will glorify him by making disciples of Jesus and the power that he supplies us by the Holy Spirit. Dear friend, I would be remiss 
if after a sermon like that, I did not invite you to place your faith in Jesus today, to begin your discipleship, your followership of Jesus today. Have you come to know that God has made you in his image to know, love and worship him? Have you come to realize that you're a sinner, that you have rebelled against God, that you've sought to do life on your own terms? Have you realized that God, even though you have broken relationship with him, that he has sought in his love to redeem you from your sinfulness, to rescue you from being a slave to yourself and to sinful ways of living by sending his son, Jesus, God in flesh, to live a perfect life that you cannot live, to die on the cross in your place, to pay the full penalty of your sins, that, that God rose, raised his son, Jesus from the dead so that if you would just trust in him, you would have salvation. You'd be born again. Your sins would be forgiven. Your relationship with God would be renewed. Have you come to believe that? But you've not yet made that decision public. You've not maybe yet staked a flag in the ground saying, I am a follower of Jesus. Make today that day. Enter into, I pray that you would begin to cooperate and be a part of our vision for making followers of Jesus by expressing your knowledge of Christ as Lord of your life and Savior of your soul today. In a moment, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song of response. And if that's you, you need to trust Jesus for the first time today. You need to let the, this church and the world know that you are a follower of Jesus. I'll be standing here at the front. Corey, our student minister, will be standing here. I'm going to ask my wife, Nikki, to come and stand up at the front as well. If you need to make a decision to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior today, do it today. Come grab one of us by the hand. Tell us that that's your decision, that that's what you want to do. And be a part of starting our year off well. As we seek to plan your, your baptism, your public declaration, declaration of faith in Jesus. Church member, there may be an aspect of this vision that you need to recommit yourselves to this morning. Uh, these steps are open here at the front. We'll be here to pray with you about uh, however you need God's help and assistance or the help of the church in pursuing and fulfilling our vision for the year. We want to do that. Use this time of response to do that. However God is calling you to respond, do that this morning. Don't delay. Let's begin the year well. Let's pursue our mission of glorifying God by making disciples of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit together. Let's commit to it. I pray that you will and join me. Uh, in seeking to fulfill all that God has called us to do together as a church. Let's pray.